How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 89 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, wow, feels like it's been a little while since we did a, you know, plain old vanilla episode of X-Lapsed. It might take a little while getting used to saying that. Uh, it's, it was a nice little uh, vacation last week, uh, celebrating Christmas and talking about Christmas with the X-Men stories. And I thank you all for indulging me uh, for the little vacation there. I hope folks enjoyed it. But all good things come to an end, I guess, and so we are back to the regular old grind here. Um, I know I needed the break because, boy, these Dawn of X books were kind of getting under my skin. So uh, hopefully, the book we're going to discuss today, eh, hopefully we're on the, you know, gets us off on the right foot here, going back into business as usual. Now, the book we're going to be discussing today is one of the giant size books here, the fourth of five. This is Giant Size X-Men, Phantom X, number one. Now, this had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called The World, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Rod, the ridiculous Reese. Oh, boy, this book. We're going to talk a lot about how this book looks. It is just, oh, boy, it's great. It is beautiful. Uh, letters by VCs Ariana Mayer Mar Ariana Mar I think um, designs Tom Muller edits Bisa White Sabolski cover price four dollars ninety nine cents went on sale August fifth of twenty twenty. Now we open and we're in a lab where babies are being grown in canisters. Uh, there's a bunch of weird like Sienkiewiczian stuff flying around in the forefront, which is really cool. Uh, there's also a lot of talk of ideas, advanced ideas even. And, well, I mean, there are some AIM beekeepers on the cover, so there you go. Now, a pair of doctors are having a conversation about what it is that they do here. And what they do here is worship science. In a Hickman book? Well, I never. Hmm. There's a little bit more yada, 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 until they uh, come across a pair of identical babies. Like, identical, identical. Clones, even. They talk about what an astronomical impossibility such a thing is, before deciding that they probably should keep one and toss the other. Um, at the time, you know, you don't know if this baby is supposed to mean anything, or maybe even be someone we know. Might find out it's the star of the issue. Or maybe it's just a scene Hickman really wanted to write to sound high concept and sciency. Maybe we'll find out in just a few pages. Hmm. Uh, roll call. Phantom X. That's it. A uh, single page spread of credits, thank goodness, because, I mean, we wasted enough space on that roll call. We resume with the comics a decade later. Here we see a beret-wearing Phantom X about to re-enter Danny the Street. I, I mean, I mean the world. I, Morrison created them both, right? I guess it's, it's okay. 
Anyway, he's got the Howling Commandos with him, and they spend about a page and a half trying to deduce the origin of Phantom X's accent. Anyway, inside the world, the Howlers fight off a bunch of robots. Phantom X climbs up a great big spiral tower, then hops on the back of a pterodactyl and flies away. He reaches a young boy, who he asks if he'd like to leave. The boy says no, not yet. From here, we jump ahead another decade, ten years later. We rejoin Phantom X, who's arranging a deal with Sebastian Shaw and the Hellfire Club to re-enter the world again. After some chatter, the Hellfires agree to accompany him. Once inside, they're attacked by even more robots, and a nasty uh, octopus-looking thing that I suppose could be a robot, or it could be like a Cthulhu sort of thing that people like sticking in these books. Whatever the case, Phantom X leaves the club to fight while he runs off to find that boy again. Now the boy is older. I mean, it's been ten years, right? Phantom X unmasks, revealing them to be identical twins. Maybe even that pair of clones from the opening scene. Anyway, the boy now man still is not ready to leave. He's got too much work to do raising the children of the world. He tells Phantom X it'd probably be for the best if he doesn't come back. And so, ten years later, Phantom X doesn't go back. Instead, he's enjoying some time on the beach. He's not going to try to re-enter the world. And in fact, he suggests that he may never try to again. Until about ten years later. Or exactly ten years later, why not? Now, he's decided to go back to the world here. And uh, he surrounds himself with a group of... LOL randoms, uh, the Humungonauts. This is really starting to feel like Baby's first Grant Morrison comic. Um, let's do a roll call for the Humungonauts. Red Eye, he looks kind of like a space knight with a giant red dot on his mask. Emotapool, which is a merc with a smiley face mask. Rustbot, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. And Mohawk Person. Who has a mohawk and kind of looks like a reaver. So they enter the world, and it's not long before the humongonauts realize that they're only being used for bait, because Phantom X tells them they're being used for bait. They're attacked by a robot horde, and they probably all die. Phantom X then meets up with his clone brother again, and the brother says that they're building something in the world that cannot be stopped. Ten years later, we actually jump into an honest-to-goodness Grant Morrison comic. It's New X-Men number 144, where Wolverine and Cyclops meet up with Phantom X to enter the world. And Cyclops becomes sloppy drunk, which I suppose we might blame for how drinky the current yearbooks are. I mean, if Morrison did it, how can we say it's wrong, right? They go inside the world. They fight off robots. They fight things again. Phantom X then runs into Ultimaton, or Automaton, who I'm guessing we're supposed to figure is Phantom X's clone twin brother guy. Anywho, Ultimaton, or Ultimaton, he tells Phantom X that he built the world and has broken it. He then has a very confusing and high-concept conversation with himself. From here, we jump ahead not quite ten years later. Phantom X is hanging out with an AIM beekeeper, asking such high-concept things as, what is real? Suddenly, and thankfully, a Krakoan gateway opens. From it emerge Storm, Cypher, and probably M. Uh, Storm tells Phantom X that she is dying. Oh yeah, you remember that plotline? Yeah, I guess it's back. 
Also, that mutant scientists believe that the cure for what ails her is somewhere inside the world. And so they need his help getting in there. Phantom X agrees, and we wrap up with them doing the thing. So I'm guessing that our final giant size, giant size X-Men colon Storm, which we'll be getting to pretty soon here on the show, will take place inside the world. So uh, like 30-odd pages of X-Men fighting weird robots and spouting pseudoscience until they run out of pages? Oh boy. That is Giant Size X-Men, Phantom X number one. Next episode, we'll be talking about Marauders number 11, but let's talk about this issue here, shall we? Okay, let's start hot, okay? The art here, oh boy, it's phenomenal stuff here. It's like you can't even put into words how awesome this looks. Uh, Every page here is an absolute treat. It's just gorgeous stuff. Uh, The world offers like the perfect chaotic environment for Reese to play in. And honestly, I couldn't imagine this issue looking any better than this. Just absolutely amazing. Worth the price of admission and then some. Perfect, perfect stuff. As for the story, well, we got some Chris problems here. Uh, Let me just come out and say, I don't get Phantom X. Uh, Outside of the really cool design, I don't find him anywhere near as interesting as I think I'm supposed to, and as most folks seem to. He always kind of struck me, and this might sound like heresy, but he struck me as a gambit stand-in. I mean, this is a character created by Morrison, so this, you know, is probably heresy. But, you know, stop and think about it. They're kind of cut out of the same cloth personality-wise. And just like Gambit, Phantom X is a character whose design kind of, like, oozes cool, right? Uh, He's got this aura around him. Where on the face of it, you you can't help but to be drawn in. You want to know more about these characters. But then, just like Gambit, we learn that he's surrounded and embedded by some horribly boring crap that the creative types always seem to go back to. Gambit's got, like, Belladonna and the Thieves' Guild, which is... which sucks, and is responsible for some of the dullest stories from the 90s. And Phantom X has, you know, Danny the Street. I mean, mean the world. Which is high concept and pseudo-sciency enough for 21st century comics... But to me, it's just so very dull. Um, in my Morrison rereads, I always skip the Weapon Plus stuff, as well as the final arc with the Sylvester art and that white beast, because I think that's very boring too. But uh, not my cup of tea. Um, with that out of the way, what do we got here? Well, for all I know, this might just be a retelling of things we already knew, or it might be a brand new origin story for Phantom X. I couldn't tell you because at the end of the day, I really don't care. Um, And the story didn't make me want to either. And like I said, this is a Chris problem. If Phantom X is a character that you dig, you're going to like this. I don't, so I didn't. Though, as mentioned, it, it is very, 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 very pretty to look at. And I do appreciate some of the things they did here. Tying Phantom X into Marvel history... I appreciate that. I'm, a, I'm always a fan of adding lore layers, right? Having him work alongside the Howling Commandos and the Hellfire Club, it doesn't break any of the toys, right? It works well. You can put him in there. It's not contradicting anything that came before. It's not a everything you thought you knew is wrong. It's, it's very benign stuff. Uh, the group of rejects, though, the Humungonauts, you know me. 
Anytime I feel like a writer's going for the low-effort, cheap pop, I tune out. I mean, we have a character named Mohawk Person. This is up there with, like, look at me, look at me, explodey boy, you know. Please retumble my pages. Not a fan of that kind of stuff. Um, Overall, though, as an artist showcase, they don't get much better than this. Uh, As a story, your mileage will vary, probably. You'll probably enjoy this more than I did. Uh, We finally seem to remember the point of these giant-sized issues, which is to say we were reminded that Storm is sick and dying. And this is our fourth such giant-sized book, and only the second time we're hearing about it. You know, the first outside of the actual first, you know, uh, when it actually went down. This is the first time we're hearing about it since then. So hopefully, you weren't spending $5 a pop on these, hoping to get bits and pieces on that storyline throughout. Or hell, I mean, maybe Emma's New Island and Lady Mastermind will figure prominently in the fifth and thankfully final giant size issue. Maybe this is all going to come together beautifully? I don't know. Now, despite the fact that this feels very much to me like Baby's first Grant Morrison comic, I can't not recommend it simply due to the strength of the art. And yes, like I said, Reese's work is worth every bit of your five American dollars, if not a bit more. So get this book, look at this book, and hopefully you'll enjoy this book a little bit more than I did. I don't care for Phantom X. He's uh, one of those misses for me from the Morrison run. Thankfully, he's got a cool design and a chaotic enough world that uh, Rod Reese was able just to kick ass in. So, for that much, I'm thankful. But uh, for the story, eh, what are you going to do? Now, before we hop into the mailbag, let me do our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 10 power rankings, which I neglected to do when we talked about X-Men number 10. I totally forgot it. So, uh, let's do that right now. And it took a little bit of doing because it's been a little while since we looked at these. I had to reread some notes and uh, try to remember what happened in each of these issues here. And when I did so, the results were a little surprising. They were actually quite surprising because my number one book of the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 10s was Excalibur. How in the world did that happen? Excalibur number 10 was my best. From here, we go to Marauders number 10, which only slipped because it felt a little fillery. Still a strong issue, but definitely an exercise in treading water till they got to uh, the lead-up to X of 10s. Definitely just filler. Um, And also, that was one of the few... I think that was the first Dawn of X book to come out following the COVID hiatus. So I think uh, things were kind of wobbly at that point. I think we were already supposed to be kind of deep into X of Tens at that point, calendar-wise. So I think it was just a lot of uh, trying to figure out where things are, trying to figure out and calibrate where things were going to go. So really not a fault of the book so much, uh, just kind of a victim of circumstance. That said, I did enjoy Excalibur more than that. Third book was X-Force, which wrapped up our Terra Verde stuff. Then fourth book, New Mutants, which wrapped up our Carnelia stuff. Fifth book was a book I hated, X-Men number 10, where uh, we tied into Empire and uh, got drunk. Yeah, just another really, really bad issue of X-Men Volume 5. But uh, very strange. Very strange going back and looking at these things. Uh, so again... One, Excalibur, two Marauders, three X-Force, four New Mutants, and five X-Men. 
I, I look forward to hearing your guys' power rankings. If you are uh, participating, I'd uh, be interested in hearing your thoughts. Uh, now, with that out of the way, let's head into the mailbag here. I got a bunch of mail piled up from uh, the little uh, week hiatus that we took looking at Christmas stories, but I'm not going to just throw it all in here. I'm going to space it out as best I can here as to not, uh, well, first as to not just blow through them all, and second to uh, to give them the proper time that they deserve. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing Empire colon X-Men number one. He says, this is terrible. <laughs> the comic, not the podcast. You're still great, Chris. Well, thank you. The principal problem is the Scarlet Witch. She's been utterly ruined as a character, probably starting from Burns' West Coast Avengers run and progressively getting worse every time they tried to fix her. They took the most interconnected and familial of the Avengers and separated her from everyone else, therefore removing her unique selling point. Then they hobbled her further by removing her mutant identity for exceptionally stupid reasons. Bringing her back into the X-Men immediately damages the story. Now, for me, um, the Scarlet Witch has long been a case of, like, if it's not broke, fix it anyway, right? Uh, even going back as far as, like you said, that Burn West Coast run. I agree, I don't think she's ever recovered from that, and every attempt to fix her has only made things worse. Um, she's kind of like the Hawkman of the Marvel Universe, minus all the continuity gaffes. Actually, maybe she's more of like the Donna Troy or Wally West of the Marvel Universe, just... A very inconvenient character that nobody seems all that interested in getting right. It's just kind of a... She's like a device. Um, And this might just be a Chris thing, but there's also this weird feeling of smugness every time I see her on panel. And again, I'm projecting, I'm sure of it. It's as though her entire existence uh, during, you know, the 21st century can be distilled down as a giant middle finger from Marvel to X-Men fans. Also, you know, for fans, for any fans who dare to actually value characters over creators, you know, um, I mean, this very story with Scarlet Witch is leaning back into a Brian Bendis cluster frig where he twisted a character to suit his story. That's what we've seen ever since, too. That was kind of the, uh, you know, the, priming the pump here for everything that come after that. Mark Miller just bending half the Marvel Universe so so that Civil War could work, you know? And, and you know, they destroy these characters, or they break these characters, and they're, then they just leave. They just go away. I mean, now Bendis is gone. He destroyed the Scarlet Witch, and now he's gone. And now he's over at DC, needlessly and irreparably screwing up Superman. And when he's done with that, he'll go somewhere else. And he'll be welcomed wherever he's going to go with open arms. It's it's a shame. It's a real shame. Damien continues. Unless they're going to do a story where it's revealed that she really is Magneto's daughter, but she dies protecting mutants without knowing and is resurrected back into the mutant family, I can't see a story that could rescue her. And yeah, that'll never happen, unfortunately. Uh, and the only way it could happen, the you know, the first part of, uh, of your uh, suggestion, is if they decide that Magneto isn't a mutant, and never was. <laughs> Which... I probably shouldn't even put that out into the universe, should I? Because it could happen. Damien continues. Creating an angry zombie zombie army is probably the stupidest thing that Wanda has ever been given to do. And yeah, I just don't understand the thinking here. Does she not know about the resurrection protocols? She can't be that out to lunch, right? I mean, that's kind of the one of the bigger things going on in 
maybe it's just because I only read the Marvels, the 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 X Men stuff. <laughs> maybe that's why I think it's important. Maybe in the other books it's nothing, but uh, or in the grand scheme of things it's nothing. But you'd think you'd think she'd know. Damien continues. As for the alien invasion, it's clear that the X-Books couldn't ignore Empire. Alien plants invading Earth inevitably would cross into current X-Men territory, but I can't help fe- but it can't help feeling stale when we spent so much of the Hox Pox Docs era on space stories. This is compounded by using a weird team of characters. I presume Hickman wanted to use people who weren't focal in his current plans, but it ends up feeling like an afterthought or a random pick of names from a hat. And yes, the space Space stuff. Uh, I, I want to use a different S word for that, but uh, I'm trying my best. I'm biting my tongue. The space stuff. Uh, fatigue is definitely real. And uh, yeah, you're 100% right that this sort of invasion does unfortunately cross into X territory. And you know, maybe if all of our Dawn of X books weren't already focused on space stuff, maybe it would have landed a little bit better. Um, it was just more of the same, though. And what's more, it was far worse than the stuff that's already boring me in the Dawn of X books. You know, this was worse than the Brood Invasion that we just read in X-Men Volume 5, which I hated, but this was worse than that. I mean, is this just Marvel now? For folks who venture outside the X books, is every single Marvel book just heroes dealing with lazy space stuff? Like, are we still that taken from, like, lol, Thanos snaps his fingers, so everything now has to be an outer space thing? Is Do we even do street level anymore? If so, I mean, please, please recommend me a book to read where we just have heroes on Earth, dealing with things on Earth. No pseudoscience, no high concept, no aliens, just... I mean, maybe I just need to read Punisher, but maybe even Punisher's cosmic now, who knows, but, uh... Street-level stuff. If you know anything good, please help your humble host out. Uh, Now, Damien continues. I must admit that I didn't read this as closely as I do some other titles, but did I miss how zombies got from Genosha to Wakanda? Based on the map and on the info page, they would have had to travel hundreds of miles through a heavily populated region of Africa. Are we to believe that no one noticed an army of zombies invading a continent? And I only include this bit of Damien's message because I had the same questions. Uh, because I, too, kind of skimmed this one the first time through, but I do read these things a number of times before I start writing about them. And my first read through the issue, I was like, wait, how did they get from one to the other? And, uh, and that is because it is very awkwardly depicted. My second read through is like, okay, I still don't get it. And then it's like... As I'm writing my script, I'm finding that it doesn't make much sense. It's like we're on Genosha, then Wakanda, but then we're back in Genosha again. How did this happen? And I've seen Damien's follow-up email to this, so he he got it sorted out just like I did. They were never in Wakanda. They were planning on going to Wakanda, but they landed on Genosha to scout it out. And I had to actually edit my notes for this episode during my you know second and third read-through because I thought they were in Wakanda too. I just no, what it's very, very awkwardly done. You would think with the amount of editors they have on these things, it would be a little bit smoother to read. But, but yes, it was quite confusing. Quite confusing. Now, Damien continues. I basically walked away from this issue feeling angry. Not at being conned into buying it because I read it on Marvel Unlimited, but at the slapdash nature of the thing. All the people involved can do better. And it's true. Uh, what it comes down to is that uh, this was half-assed. 
and half-assed might actually be giving it too much credit. Because as we work through this, it's what, there's like seven writers on these four issues? It's like, I think there's three, there's Hickman, then there's three on issue two, and another three on issue three, and then we go back to Hickman. So we have seven writers for this cash-in story that means nothing. So very much a an afterthought and half-assed. Uh, Damien continues. The art was good. I should probably mention that. And yes, it was. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I almost feel resentful that I have to read another three issues of this crap. But I love your podcast, and getting to be a part of it through commenting is such great fun, so I'll survive. <laughs> and yes, by now I've read Damien's uh, next three missives, and uh, they're very, very good. And I look forward to sharing them uh, as we continue along here. But uh, thank you so much for putting yourself through Empire for the show. <laughs> I uh, I commend you and I thank you sincerely. So thank you so so much. Uh, next, uh, Jesse DeJong is talking about Cable Number Two and Empire X Men. Jesse says, "I have just a few things about wrapping up Empire X Men Cable Number Two. First off, in Cable Number Two, if you didn't notice the interrogation room scenes that had both Young Cable and Cyclops in, they're drawn almost identically." At first, I thought that Cyclops was just using Emma as kind of a conduit to see what Cable was up to, and that's why they were the same, but it does really seem like he went there, and Noto is just that clever of an artist. I like when things like this are slipped into comics for us to discover. And I didn't notice that. I I looked at it since then. I looked at it since getting this message, and uh, really, really cool stuff. I like that a lot. I didn't notice it, but uh, upon, upon reflection, very, very cool. Uh, Jesse continues Phil Noto is amazing as you've said His art for the Marvel's 80th anniversary Is the only comic poster I have in my office And except for a Scotty Young poster In the kids playroom This is the only comic related stuff That I'm allowed to have outside my comic room Do you have this kind of control with your other half? Are you limited in what you're allowed to display around the house? Anyway it's a beautiful poster And eventually I'll get it signed Hopefully I've been following Noto for over a decade now And his style just stands out I have no problem dropping money to give any story he's involved in a try. And uh, I, I don't own a whole lot of wall art. Uh, mostly uh, because I can't commit to actually putting anything up on a wall. I don't know what it is about me. I've got, sitting right next to me now, I've got my Action Comics 1000 poster where it has all 1000 covers on it, which I've got it framed, but it's just leaning against the wall right now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shaking it right now. It's just sitting here next to me. Uh, I've got some other framed stuff, uh, art prints, some autographed books, assorted ephemera. They're just sitting in a stack. Um, so I don't know if the wife would uh, would <laughs> get annoyed at me trying. I, I've never tried. <laughs> I just uh, Commitment is a big problem for me, even just hanging something on a wall. It's very bizarre. Jesse continues. The sandwich scene is so fun. Give me more of that. And Absolutely. I love that uh, it wasn't dwelled on. You know, a Cyclops went to went to Philadelphia. He got himself a cheesesteak at the you know at the suggestion of uh, the officers. And the next scene, he's just eating a sandwich. It's just there. I feel like a lesser writer would have made the entire scene into a big sandwich gag. And thankfully, that's not what we got. It was just a, a cute little thing. It was fun. Uh, Jesse continues. I think you also brought up the Reserve X-Men, Pauly, Provenzano, Sunpire, and Wraith, and asked what happened to those characters in the, this episode. 
I know that Paul died in the Weapon X title when it was about mutants and death camps. I believe he was put in a gas chamber or something along with top X-Men characters Maggot and Sienna Blaze. Sunpire, I also believe, died at some point. I want to say in the X-Core storyline with Banshee's Midlife Crisis. And Wraith, I'm pretty sure, was depowered on M-Day. And the only one of those that I remember, I do remember Paulie dying, was it Wonderland or Neverland or whatever they call that camp in that horrid, horrid Weapon X series. Um, I remember Maggot being in that scene as well. I always look at that as being like one of Marvel's too cool for school eras, you know, where we all collectively decided that we were like too smart for some sillier characters or some off-center characters like Maggot. And uh, we were just... Killing people for the for the laughs and and to uh, make ourselves feel better, and I think that was one of those books that uh, was that Frank Thierry, who everybody said got the gig because he was Joe Casada's friend, because I mean all of a sudden we went from having like zero Frank Thierry books to like six every month, like out of nowhere. It's very very bizarre, very strange times, very strange times, and so strange that we thought we were so enlightened back then. Odd. Jesse continues, Speaking about M-Day, you've brought up this event a few times and your dislike of it. I actually loved this storyline, and I was disappointed when the lights started popping up in Generation Hope. And yeah, I was not a fan of M-Day. I think a lot of it had to do with my knowing, or or my refusing to let go of knowing how the sausage is made, because we all know how the sausage is made, right? I mean, I'm not an insider by any stretch of the imagination. We know that this was an edict, and we know that this was... Joe Quesada kind of throwing a temper tantrum because Grant Morrison went back to D.C. And so he was trying to undo everything Grant did. So that's part of my problem with it. I didn't so much mind the lights, but I thought they the way they went about doing it was kind of out of nowhere. Very like anticlimactic, underwhelming. Uh, we spent like, what, five or six years trying to solve the problem. And it was only like... You remember how in the 90s, the legacy virus was the big thing. You know, it was kind of this thing that just bubbled in the background forever. And only really got a mention when they when they remembered it. I felt like that's what the whole decimation era was was about for the the aughts or the 20, the, the 2000s, I guess. It was that storyline that kind of just bubbled. And like maybe every three or four months, you'd get a scene of Beast in his lab saying like, oh, I got to figure out out what I'm doing here. You know, just like with the legacy virus during the decade prior. It was just a thing that was just never going to get solved. And then when it got solved, it was just, you know, quick as a cricket, just done. You know, we uh, a switch flipped and it was fixed. And it was like, wait, what? You know, and that's... You know, the legacy virus was cured when Colossus sacrificed himself, and here, it was just like, oh, mutants are born. <laughs> we're done. We're, everything's fixed now. And I mean, right now, we're almost right back to those those Morrison-era numbers. Now, Jesse continues. I thought that the mutant verse was getting too large, and that they were no longer a minority or special, and that they'd become an everyday occurrence. I liked having the 198, and with the death of every mutant, it was like the X-Men were losing the battle. They were each special and became more so as time went on. Beast tried and tried, but could not fix the problem. I really liked that storyline, too. With the Phoenix Five and the Resurrection Protocols, being a mutant isn't special anymore. There are hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of them. When everyone is special, then no one is special. 
And yes, I agree totally. There's a lot of truth to that. And um, I think a lot of this goes back to uh, Marvel editorial being a little too loosey-goosey with their superstar creators. I mean, I'm on record as loving Grant Morrison's run on on the X-Books. But you're 100% right. There should have never been that many mutants introduced all at once. Being a mutant was no longer special. There was nothing unique about it. From there, we go to the Academy X era where, I mean, they had like a half dozen squads of young mutant heroes. It makes me wonder if Morrison, in the back of his mind, had a way of putting that genie back in the bottle. Or was he just hanging Marvel with all the rope they gave him? It seems weird, right? I mean, you think back to, you know, Claremont doing the Mutant Massacre. And the reason, one of the reasons he did that is because he thought there were too many mutants. And there were only, like, 50, <laughs> you know? Uh, around the time where Claremont left and John Byrne came back on as a scripter for a few issues, he wanted to do a second Mutant Massacre because he thought there were too many mutants and there were probably, like, 75. <laughs> now we're in the millions. And it's, uh, it's pretty ridiculous. And I mean, this might sound old-fashioned. It might make me sound like I'm 10 years older than I actually am. But I feel like we really need someone like a Jim Shooter to guide and, like, steward these characters and properties because there really is no rhyme or reason to things anymore. And we're at a point where where it isn't unusual to have a half-dozen editors credited on a single book, and there's somehow less quality control than back when Marv Wolfman was editing his own work. I mean, how many editors were credited on Crisis on Infinite Earths? I mean, one of the biggest stories ever told. How many editors were on that? Compare that with how many editors are credited on a four-panel Harley Davidson ad on the back cover of a Marvel comic. Where there are three or four editors on a four-panel Harley Davidson ad. Uh, These are all avoidable situations, but I feel like we're too busy building mousetraps that we don't have the time or interest to seeing if they can actually catch any mice. It's we're just building. We're not actually we're not actually seeing if there's any results here. It's very it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Jesse continues. I also liked Wanda being haunted by her mistakes and wanting to fix them. Yeah, it's starting to get old, but I thought the idea of her making things even worse in Empire X-Men was interesting. I wish they would have focused more on that and not the generic alien invasion. I see why Marvel wanted the X-Men involved in a plant-based lifeform invasion, but it didn't have to be so blah. I'm also just waiting for Marvel to come out and say that Namor is no longer a mutant, along with the reveals of Franklin Richards, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Cloak, and Dagger all not being mutants. It's almost like mutants a dirty word. Yeah, remember when Alex's speech in Uncanny Avengers about how mutants a dirty word? Oh, someday you will hear my thoughts on Alex Summers. And yes, as much... As much disdain as I have for Wanda and use of Wanda in stories like this, you're right. Uh, Had they focused more on her instead of the generic veg-type aliens, this might have been a better story. I mean, it couldn't be a worse story, right? (laughs) It really couldn't have been. Unfortunately, I think that would require different editorial fiefdoms or fiefdoms to work closely together. And at least in theory, you know, I think we've seen that, that there really isn't all that much communication between them these days. Uh, which is probably yet another reason why we we need us a Jim Shooter. We just don't deserve us a Jim Shooter. Uh, I was actually unaware that they retconned Cloak and Dagger as not being mutants. 
that's news to me, though. I guess with a Netflix cash-in or a Hulu cash-in or whoever whoever they're cashing in with, they'd probably need to disassociate them from the X-Line. It's kind of pathetic, and uh, you're right. I'm actually surprised that Namor hasn't already been declared non-mutants. Non-mutant, because that's almost got to be coming, right? That's... I don't know if they have a Namor movie in the works or a Namor... Do they still do Netflix shows? Maybe we have a, a Submariner Netflix show? Who knows? But, uh... I have a feeling that if that if and when that does happen, yeah, he will no longer be a mutant. He'll be just pure Atlantean or whatever. And I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on, on Havoc. I definitely do. Jesse continues. And to finish this off, I'm glad you liked how Explody Boy's story ended. I had told you before that in issue four, he'll have some redemption, and I couldn't wait to hear your feelings on it. I think maybe the living Explody Boy was supposed to blow up the bulb thing, but the undead one took the sacrifice for him. I have no idea how his powers work. Yes, he has a stupid name, but not everyone can have awesome names like Maggot, Sprite, or I Boy. <laughs> very, very true. What I don't understand is if, uh, if the living Explody Boy was supposed to blow up the bulb, like, are we just fully engaging in suicide missions now? Like, did Beast strap that rocket to him and say, hey, go die? You know, is that... It feels like we're taking advantage of the resurrection protocols and also just not valuing life at all, you know? Very strange, but also, I could totally see it. I could totally see it. Um, Not a fan of that. And, I mean, we've talked about how devalued life is and how devalued reactions to death are. In these books, but yeah, definitely not a fan of that. Um, Jesse wraps up with Before I go, I want to express my absolute thanks for Cosmic Treadmill episode 121 about Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer from December 2018. It's become a yearly tradition for me to listen to that episode, and it makes me laugh every time I listen. So thank you, and thanks to Reggie. Have a wonderful holiday. That made my day. Um, thank you. Uh, that Rudolph episode is one. I mean, we've we've Reggie and I did hundreds of episodes of different programs together. I I still remember the Rudolph episode because it was a very special one. Um, I've talked about listening to Christmas podcasts and watching Christmas programs on TV and stuff, and it's just something I do. I mean, there's a website called uh, betamaximus.com where it's basically like an aggregate of uh, various Christmas YouTube videos. Like, it could be a compilation of Christmas commercials, it could be the the He-Man, She-Ra holiday special, it could be an Inspector Gadget Christmas. And I'll put that on in the background any time of year, because I just love the feeling of that, uh, of Christmas, any time of year. And... I remember listening to people's programs, people's podcasts that were Christmas episodes, and I would listen to them any time of year. So when I was working over the road, and it would be like the middle of July, and I'd pull on, I'd throw on an episode of whatever podcast's Christmas show, I'd be sitting in my car, uh, getting ready to do a job, it would be 120 degrees outside, and yet I'm listening to a group of people talk about Christmas and their and their gifts and uh, the season and it always got me into that mood. It got me into that sort of feeling. And then Reggie and I did a couple of Christmas episodes that I feel didn't capture that spirit. Uh, we did the 
the Christmas with the Superheroes DC special. We did an ambush bug, the Christmas special, uh, the stocking stuffer. And they were fun episodes, but they didn't make me feel like I was there. You know, I wasn't in that mode. With Rudolph, though, oh man, that one was just so special. And it felt so... It felt like I was part of something special with that episode. I still... We recorded it on a, the Sunday, the Saturday morning before Christmas, I believe. And I had to run to the store beforehand. So I had to rush to get all, all some some stuff, some last-minute shopping in. And then got back like just in the nick of time to do that recording. And uh, it was one where it, like, it transcended an episode. So I'm so happy that you that you enjoy that episode and that you listen to it uh, every year. That That means so much to me because... There are certain things that I do every year as part of my my Christmas ritual and uh, as just getting ready for the season and just the things I need to check off. It's like I need to do this, this, and watch this and listen to that. And it's to be a part of that really, really means the world to me. And uh, and I I definitely appreciate that. So thank you so, so much. That's where we're going to put a a button in the mailbag for now. We still have plenty of messages to talk about, and we will cover those over the next handful of episodes, I'm really looking forward to digging back into the mailbag and sharing some some very thoughtful uh, commentary. So look forward to that. But uh, if anybody would like to reach out, please feel free to do so. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. There's also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can talk with us about Whatever you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook And you can listen to Whatever you want at ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com That's where we'll leave it for today I want to thank you so much for uh, for listening And being part of this with me And uh, it's It's nice to be back I think uh, the week off did me a lot of good Even though I wasn't the hugest fan of this issue But uh, we do have Marauders Coming up and that very rarely um, Disappoints So Looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. One more giant thank you for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.